Hey friends, my name's Stevie Taylor. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. My guest today is guitarist and vocalist Jay Perino. Now, Jay first came to public attention in 2009 as a finalist on Australia's Got Talent. His unique version of the Minute Work classic Down Under quickly reached 6 million hits on YouTube. Since being on the show, Jay's also gone on to be a contestant on The Voice, um, a judge on All Together Now. He writes and records music for his band Outlier, um, which you can hear playing right now. Um, as well as he plays and sings with many other projects. Um, In this chat, Jay gives us a real insight into the inner workings of some of these reality music shows. It's really interesting stuff. Jay has also made social media really work for him. Um, We get into that a bit too. So I hope you really enjoy this one. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Jay Perino. Cheers. I think we're rolling. Jay Perino. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Welcome to my uh, bachelor pad. Lovely, man. We're watching the <laughs> soccer practice over there. Yeah. I'm just getting some tips because I've just been roped into coaching my daughter's soccer team this year. Okay. Haven't done it before. Have, so, you, um, have you played though? Oh, when I, was, when I was young. Okay. Yeah. How old are we talking? Mm. Uh, your daughter. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were talking, when, when did I play? Oh, both, both, both. <laughs> my daughter's, uh, she's playing under 11s. Under 11s. Yeah, okay. yeah. And um, I, I maybe have been that age too when I played, but yeah, you know, should be right. I'll just get some tips over there. Yeah, <laughs> just got to be patient. That's it, man. With that age. That's it. I mean, yeah. See how we go. I had I had guitar students that were probably like six or seven. Yeah, and just like keeping their attention for half an hour, like after five minutes on one topic, they're elsewhere. They're elsewhere. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, especially in this day and age of of distractions. I know. I know. The attention and span is gone. We had our first. Training last week and it was like I had this idea in my head that they'll all be standing around me when I call them over. <laughs> it just didn't happen. First ten minutes is sort of <laughs> get them to come over. It looks so good on the paper. I know, eh? <laughs> yeah, and I had it all timed out and everything. Yeah. yeah, all good. So, what have you been up to, man? You're um, you're um, currently touring around doing the um, the Eric Clapton, Paul McCartney, yeah, thing. So, tell us a bit about that, and then we'll we'll roll back. Yeah, sure. Well, um, yeah. So, I, I do lots of. Um, the pub just stand and covers gigs and weddings and that's sort of my meat and potatoes of what pays my bills. But um, my main goal in the last couple of years was to get out of that a little bit and more into like the actual uh, club and theatre shows where people are paying to come and see you and listen to you and, you know, you've got a, an attentive audience. Yep. Um, not that there's anything wrong with playing to, you know, a drunk crowd of people on the dance floor that are having a great time. You know, I've had some of the best nights of my life uh, doing stuff like that. But uh, it does feel good to, you know, spend some time learning a repertoire and, yeah, have costume changes and have a big screen behind you and be part of something, you know, that's that's had a lot of time and effort put into it and that people, you know, you know that they've paid money to come and see you and sit there and watch it and appreciate yeah. it and hear that. 
applause after every song. Yeah. People don't clap anymore in, in pubs. You yeah, know? no, they'll, they don't. They'll hear you play and they'll yeah. dance and they'll sing and then next. Yeah, well, it's their time to pick up and check Facebook. Yeah. See if they've been tagged. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's two, two of those. that the, the one that you mentioned is called Guitars Gently Weep. And that's my sort of show that I put together. Um, started that probably, I don't know, over a year ago. Um, and I approached uh, Brett Williams from the Choir Boys about doing it after I had done a, done a couple of gigs with, with his band. And, oh, man, he's just the sweetest, nicest guy in the world. We ended up, like, becoming really good mates. And so we spent about a year and a half, uh, he and I and Bobby Poulton from, nice from yep. the Frankie's band. Yep. He's the other sort of key member. He plays the uh, Jack Bruce part in the uh, in the Cream stuff. Um, he's a freak. So really lucky to have those two as sort of my core players and then keyboards and drums would sort of rotate depending on who's around. We did it with Fabrizio a few times, um, Andreas, Andreas Hyde on drums a few times. Uh, just sort of just depends who's available right. on right. a given day. Yep. So that's my baby but then um, – this year I got approached, or, or late last year I got approached about doing this thing called uh, Listen to the Movies, which is it's a really cool idea, um, the brainchild of uh, Tom Ferris and Andrew O. And Tom's an incredible, um, you, you know, uh, session guitar player that's, you know, worked with some really established artists and he's, he's done music for like the soundtracks of uh, the, Aust- the Australia, that Hugh Jackman movie. So... Um, he did Carols in the Domain for years, so he's, he's really uh, at that uh, sort of elite level of um, of local guitar players who are one of the most respected guys around. So this is their show that they put together and they um, needed a male vocal that could do some guitar for that show. And so uh, my name sort of came up in the mix somehow, very luckily. And uh, it's cool, like most of what I've done my whole career has been stuff that I've been in the driver's seat for, been in, in control of, and this is their baby. And I come in and do a few songs here and there, so it's oh, it's amazing, man. So for the most part of the show, I just sit backstage and watch it on the screen, and I'm awestruck. Like these guys are playing with a eight piece band; they're playing, you know, Jaws and yeah. I saw the little promo for it. Oh, yeah, it's ridiculous. The Jaws thing. <laughs> I don't envy like the workload that Tom and the boys because they're like, essentially playing, you know, thirty and forty piece orchestra parts for a seven or eight piece band. So he's got the guitar synth going with strings in there, and Andrew's got the um, the aerophone, which is a Roland thing, which can play, you know, it can can control other sounds. Uh, and the keyboardist has got two keyboardists. Two, key, two keyboards going. Um, Robbie on percussion's got timpanis and all these things programmed into his into his uh, drum pad. So everyone's everyone's. It's like sort of being in a trio where everyone's like got a, a huge role. Yeah, it's just slightly expanded. So it's um it's incredible. Uh, I'm just in awe for the most part, and um, incredibly like grateful that um, they asked me to do it. Yeah, and I'm like I'm probably the youngest by I don't know 13 or 14 years. Yeah. A little bit out of my element, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll try my best to keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Now, you said just just as you're going into that, you've all the stuff that you've done before, you've kind of had the control of, and it's been your thing. So, how does it how does it feel to kind of take a back to, back to, step to back be, seat? Sorry, yeah, um, it's different. Mm. I, I have to stop myself sometimes. Um, you know, I've got, I've got so many ideas, and I'm a control freak, and I, right. Luckily, like, these guys, I've suggested some things to them um, and they've taken it on board. Like, I said to Tom, um, 
just in passing by a text message after the first gig. I said, oh, we should do um, Deliverance, dueling banjos. I said, do you have a good banjo patch on your, on your synth controller? And he didn't write back. He's, <laughs> he's, not, he's not really from the text messaging generation, I guess. And I was like, oh, I guess he didn't like that idea. Hey, who's this guy? <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh, well, you know, it's not my show. I'll, I'll stay out of it. Yeah. But then sure enough, like, I think it might have been like three weeks later, four weeks later, I got a call from him because, you know, right. his generation calls. Right. <laughs> my generation, don't, we don't call. <laughs> but when, when he calls, I think, oh, hey, hey, it's, uh, oh, it's Tom. Yeah, I've been, um, I've got my banjo out and I've been working on uh, dueling banjos and man, oh. it's really hard and we're, we're going to include it in the show. I'm like, oh, oh, fantastic. No I can't, a... can't believe you actually listened to me. And yeah. he, he's actually got the uh, actual banjo, not the, um, not the synth. Right. So now, now I, I opened my big mouth and now I need to learn the guitar part for it. <laughs> but the banjo part in that song is freaking, that's, you know, he's got the heavy lifting again and I'm sort of, it's, it's all that rolling crazy stuff. Right. In, in, in Deliverance, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's cool. So I, I do uh, have to take a back seat and not, and you know, it's their, it's their baby. But and the, the times that I've had a couple of suggestions, like um, a funny, funny thing is uh, Andrew, the, the sax player, he was, uh, he was actually the sax player. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Mad Max Thunderdome. Yeah. There's a character in there, what's his like Tattoo Tonton or something like right. that. Is the naked sax player with the with the G string with the right. pong, ping pong eyes? That's, right. that's Andrew. Oh, is that right? Oh, wow! So he got this when he first moved to Australia. He signed up to an agency, and the agency said, "Oh, there's this movie looking for a sax player," and he didn't know anything about it. And he's like, "Yeah, I'll do it." And he's like, "Yeah, well, they want you to wear a wear a sumo thong, and they want you to <laughs> shave your head, and they want you to put ping pong balls in your eyes. Oh, and they want to shoot an arrow into your sax." So um, you know, oh. being a being a hardworking Musician that needed money in the time is yep. like, yep, I'll do that. Take that. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Um, the only thing he did was went and bought a cheap sax so that yeah, they could say. shoot an arrow <laughs> into it. But um, I said to Andrew when I found this out, because I was doing a gig with um, Jason Thornton, another sax player, and Jason's like, oh, you know that's Andrew that's in Mad Max. And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. I'm like, Why aren't we talking about this in the show? <laughs> so I said to Andrew, I said, mate, whatever you do, when it gets to that song, you need to put some uh, some footage of you in that scene and you need to t- talk about it because that's an incredible story. Yeah. And he listened to me. And right. um, it's right. like the highlight of the show now because there's all all this very, you know, Harry Potter and very serious music and um, The Exorcist and Gladiator and then it gets to this Mad Max moment and here's a guy like sort of opening up to you and saying, well, this is something kind of embarrassing I did in the 80s and yeah. here's a picture of me in my undies. Yeah, great. So, yeah, they take my stuff on board, which is um, not everybody does. Some other shows I've done, I've like, you know, I've suggested things and I've gotten replies of like, uh, yeah, nah, yeah. <laughs> instead of nah, yeah. Yeah, well, at least you've got a reply, I suppose, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I've noticed a bit too, like that, that kind of thing's a bit more prevalent now with the, um, you know, uh, bands playing movies because it, it happens a lot with the symphony orchestra now. Yeah. Yeah. There's that stuff at the opera house where they'll, they'll play a movie and yeah, have, have well, a live um, band. Do you, have, do you know uh, Jess Jumper? He's a percussionist. Uh, I know the name. Yeah, well, I had a. He was a guest, um, sort of late last year, and and he's he's in the symphony orchestra as a percussionist, mm-hmm. and he was telling me about all these shows that he does. He said it's incredible. Mm. It's amazing. You get to recreate that music. Yeah. While the screen's behind you, and there's you know hundreds of people up in the. It's just so powerful, and yeah. the, the power that it has to you know take you back to the first to time. To the time you, you heard, saw yeah, exactly. It or, you exactly. Know, 
who who you were with at the cinema when you when you watched it. Yeah, it's it's a very powerful thing. Yeah, yeah. I've always had a fascination. I, I've we were kind of as a little gimmick always sliding uh, movie themes into like guitar solos of our songs. So we would play, you know, Valerie, and I would suddenly do like the Mario Brothers theme in the solo <laughs> or Tainted Love, and I'd play a riff from The Simpsons or something. So I've always been really fascinated by film music and. Just seeing who notices and, right. and, and, and right. things like that. So this is kind of a, a dream gig for me. Yeah, that's great. And the band is awesome. Like Carmel Massetti is the, is the other vocalist mm-hmm. and oh, she's a freak. Mm-hmm. And I, um, we did the voice together. Her, her right. and I were there on the same day. So okay. spent like 12 hours waiting around at Fox Studios yeah. all day. And uh, I went and had a singing lesson with her a couple of days ago actually. She's um, oh, just a lovely lady but a monster like nails everything, you know, and – she uh, she works for Joseph Calderazzo and all the right. all the big productions in town. Um, she does BVs for uh, Doug Parkinson, right? Gigs like that. So Fantastic. you can see why people keep calling her up because she's yeah. a monster, yeah, monster great. vocalist. And Leon Gears, bass player, yeah, 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 yeah. far out, well, far out. All right, <laughs> there's some history there, man. Yeah, I like just uh, I just uh, <laughs> I just find myself fanboying. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, Mark Costa, who you who you spoke to, he yep. in, he introduced me to um, Gino Vanelli and Brother to Brother and all that stuff. Yep. I was a huge fan of that record. And then um, we're doing the doing the gig at the end of the night. Uh, Andrew introduces the band and says that, uh, some credits that people have. And this is Leon on the bass. He's played with Aretha Franklin, and he he recorded on uh, Gino Vanelli's album. And I'm like, my jaw like hits the yep. floor. I freaking love that album. I only found that out the other day too. We had a um. That he played on it? Yeah, we had a Drummer's Hang podcast episode mm-hmm. last week with a few guys and one of the topics was what was a cornerstone album that when you, you, know, when you heard that drummer, it made you change the direction where you want you know, to, to go and play a certain kind of way and mm-hmm. mine was um, Gina Vanelli Nightwalker. Okay. And then... Who played drums on that, do you know? Vinny. Okay. Yeah, Vinny Coluda. And then someone else... Suggested brother to brother, and then they said uh, Leon Gear played bass on it, and I went, "What, really? Yeah, far out, you know? It's it's crazy, crazy. Yeah. So yeah, again, you can see why I feel very out of my depth yeah. in this band. Like, mm. there's just some ridiculous talent in there. Um, and he's just really sweet guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the start of the show uh, was at the Panthers uh, Evans Theatre, so we've got our this whole like downstairs dressing room area. I don't know if you saw the photo, but he, yeah. ju- he just comes out wearing a, a superwoman skirt yeah. Yeah. with no explanation and I still don't have an explanation as to where it came from <laughs> or why and just stood there, posted some photo. I yeah. said, do you mind if I post this? And he's like, yeah, yeah. He's American accent. Yeah, yeah, go for it, post it. Yeah, yeah. And then disappears, comes back in his suit and it yeah. was never spoken of again. What was the caption? Played with Aretha. Oh. Aretha so he feels like a woman. He knows how to feel, feel like, like a, a natu- wo- natural woman. Natural woman, that's the one. <laughs> Oh, cool, man. All what right. A, what a character. Yeah. All right, let's roll right back early days, man. So um, you born in Sydney? Yep. 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 Um, around the Northern Beaches? Uh, I was born in uh, Hornsby Hospital. Horn- okay, and, Hornsby, yep. And grew up in Barara, which mm-hmm. is not far from there. Mm-hmm. And my parents are still up there in the, in the family home. Yep. You know, Wogs never leave the family home. Yeah, right. Yep. Um, so, grew- um, so Perino, is that Italian? It's Italian. Uh, okay, yeah. Yep. Yep. Bo- both parents are Sicilian born. Yeah, okay, yep. Um, they came over... Separately in their teens, early teens, um, or the, the grandparents migrated. So what, what would happen in those days is your, your nonna or your grandfather would go first, get enough, save them enough money and send, send it back and send the family over right. by boat. So they did that. 
both both families did that. Um, yeah, so yeah, both Italian parents. I've got one sister. Nobody in the family is musical whatsoever. That was my next question. <laughs> yeah, except for really my uh, dad's dad was a fantastic uh, organ player in the church. So I guess it skipped a generation. Yep. My, my there, was, there was instruments around the house. Like my dad had a, had an acoustic guitar that would sit around. There was a piano that my sister tried for a little while but didn't stick with it. So there, there was things around, but we certainly weren't a musical family by any stretch. Um, and I really got got into it sort of by a strange strange coincidence, just that I was getting in so much trouble at school all the time. Um, which now they call it ADD. Back then it was just you're a little shit, you know. Right, yep. They didn't have a name for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was constantly in detention and answering back to teachers and couldn't concentrate, couldn't focus, um, getting in fights. Just every possible thing that, uh, that I could get in trouble for, I was finding a way to do so. And so we went to a few different uh, specialist doctors and um, the first thing that happened was they decided – um, to test my reading level and I was reading a little bit ahead and doing maths and that a little bit ahead of, uh, of the age that I was at. So what I was able to do was skip from year three to year five. So I completely skipped year four, which means I don't have a pen licence. I'm, I'm an unlicensed writer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a thing back then, like they'd give you a, a pen licence in year yeah, four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm not qualified for that. But right. then, Anyway, so skipped from the end of year three at my primary school, basically got expelled. They didn't want to have me back. So my parents were like, well, what should we do? And uh, the high school that I went to, St. Pius, had a year five and six that you could sort of, you could do year five and six there and then continue on and do your rest of your high school there. So we skipped from year three in primary school up in Barara to year five at um, St. Pius in Chatswood. And... The other suggestion um, from the doctors was extracurricular, you know, music, sport, as much stuff as as you can to, uh, you know, really get your mind, you know, distracted and um, things that will put your energy into so you're not bored. So taking up an instrument. Do you, do you remember your mindset though? Back then? Yeah. Oh, uh, I was you know, bordering a psychopath, I think. Uh, okay. Yeah. I can't really relate to how I was back then, just... Very hyperactive, couldn't tell right from wrong. Um, right. Just constantly, yeah, just just brain bouncing around all over the place. And this is pre, pre coming to, to year five and I started to, you know, I was only 10, 11 years old. So mm. I'm just a kid. Mm. Um, yeah, I just I didn't, didn't have a good, uh, good sense of morals or right, right from wrong. It was just whatever. Um, I guess a lot of kids are like that, but maybe they don't have as, as wicked ideas as I did. Right. But whatever idea popped into my head, I would just instinctually act on it, which can be a beautiful thing for a child. And if you uh, can direct it into positive ways, which I figured out how to do, it's a great thing, you know. You, be- you become um, you know, a talented sportsman or musician or whatever and the honesty that can flow out of you is great. But at the, at the time, the stuff that was coming out of me was not so good. Right. Uh, and that was the ADD and... and you know, not not having a good understanding of that, and not having, and and I guess being smarter than the other kids, I was bored a lot of the time, which they figured out. And so once year five hit, um, suddenly I'm around kids that are a year older than me. So a year, a year of uh, growth at that time is like you know probably ten kilos and a few inches. So gotcha. Yeah. I couldn't really um, bully or pick on other kids anymore. So that that was one thing that got me into line. But the other thing was uh, I met uh, Simon Fishburne and. Mm-hmm. 
who you had on your podcast recently and um, started drum lessons with him and I found that to be a great physical outlet for all this energy that I had. And I really um, got into this routine of just practising every day and, and just, I don't know, seeing the stuff that you can do at home in private, put, put the hours in, um, that, can, that can accumulate and build up and have this result that you can, you can show to people and at the end of your concert or at the school dance you can play. And I have this, this light bulb moment I remember seeing um, this guitarist called Simon Relf in the, the school band and he played Smooth by Santana just like, all right, that's what I want to do. Right. And I haven't looked back really. Like, How far into drums were you? How far did you get into it? How many years? Um, from the age of 11 to about, well, pretty much through high school, but then I started transitioning into playing other things as well. Yep. So from 11 till 17, 18. Right. I was, and I got, I was, you know, I got quite decent. I was, yep. I was probably the best drummer at the school at the time and yep. I was, we got to do some incredible things like we um, competed in um, the Pacific Basin Music Festival, which is in Hawaii. So we got to go over there and I got to play drums in this school band and be on, be on holiday with my best friends in, you know, fancy hotels in Hawaii. Like, so it was, it was an incredible ride, great music program and some friends that I'm still in touch with to this day were um, in that band. So some cool stuff and, and obviously I was doing the um, the originals garage band th- thing right. as well back yep. then like yep. playing heavy metal songs and stuff mm-hmm. um, yeah I look back on those times very fondly still fantastic and who were the who were the drummers that inspired you back then um, so socially or uh, like pr- the uh, uh, um, the high level oh both um, who, who were you listening to who were you inspired by well um, I had some, like, obviously, like, friends at school that were mm. a- ahead of me and that these were, like, the cool kids in the cool music group and I was like, okay, I want to I want to get better. be like you. Yeah. 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 Yep. And I was so far behind them but in, and in a short time ended up overtaking them. So that that was one motivating factor is just, I guess, the competitive sort of spirit of it. Like, you know, if I work such and such hours, um, I'm going to be able to catch up to these guys. But then uh, from a professional um, level, uh, I really got into – what was popular at the time, like Travis Barker. Yep. It was from, it ended up being in Blink-182. Yep. Um, Chad Smith, Chili Peppers, Lars from uh, Metallica. So it was a lot of that that sort of funk and rock type stuff. Yep. Um, yeah, Vinnie Colliuta, who you mentioned, mm. um, Steve Gadd, mm. Dave Weckl, uh, all sorts, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, Simon really introduced me to a lot of that stuff because yep. you know, a, a, tw- a 12-year-old wouldn't really be listening to yeah, any of that. Yeah, but exactly. He got me into some... Um, some good practice routines and he got me all the, the right books like the, the I think it was the Carmen Apice book. The I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, he, he had all the all the right tips to get me. And that I think that's really important, like your first teacher, because if he hadn't been someone I really clicked with and gotten me into music that I liked, I might have just gotten bored like my sister did with yeah, piano right. and not stuck with it. So that that's why I said too, I think before we started recording, I said it was like a full circle moment to um, to catch up with Simon recently and do gigs with him because yeah. that very first influence that you have can be crucial. Mm-hmm. And I have um, students, parents that come up to me. There's one in particular. Um, I see her at DYRSL and I was her daughter's first guitar teacher. And she said to me, after you stopped teaching her, she never liked any of the other teachers she went with and she gave it up. She's... 
it's a flattering to me, but it's sad at the same time because yeah. if you don't have those uh, nurturing influences that keep you motivated, um, yeah, you're not going to stick with it. Mm. It's kind of a shame, but yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I, I was lucky. I always had great teachers, and even if you only picked up, you know, one or two things from each teacher, whether it was singing or guitar, there's just the little light bulb moments where something they say, you go, oh, it's it's that, and it it clicks and it sticks with you. Mm. So yeah. Cool, man. All right. And um, did you start guitar lessons straight away or you were kind of self-teaching yourself? Um, So I went from drums, just drums exclusively for a few years. Yep. And then in the the school band in in Hawaii and that that I mentioned to you, I found myself just constantly looking over to the bass player who's – his name's Pat Taylor. He's in a heavy metal band now called Sumeru. Um, and so that just got me into into the bass. So that started that, that progression from drums into stringed instruments. And we had the acoustic guitar in the house. So I took the two the two highest strings off the acoustic and just used to play it like a bass. Mm-hmm. And then from there, just you know, more and more curiosity. Like, okay, so that this thing can do chords as well. And okay, like this thing can do solos too. And this can be an accompaniment. And I can make it sound like the thing that's on that record. So the curiosity just Kept going. And that was – you working that stuff out yourself? Yeah, because we yep. didn't – there was not um, internet at the time. Yep. There was not YouTube or um, any way to, so, to sort of access how to do these things. And no, t- no teaching yet? No teachers? Of guitar. Um, quite a lot of it I did myself first. Yep. And then my parents saw like, oh, he's getting pretty serious into this. Uh, so then for a while I was d- doubling up and doing drum and guitar lessons. And then I think I kept doing that throughout high school, doubling up, doing mm. both. And then high school finished and it came to like, all right, what do you want to do? And so I decided to do the – I went to AIM, the, do the music course. Mm-hmm. And because, because there was no one really singing at the time in, in, um, in high school, like singing was a very uncool thing to do. Right. Um, I started being the singer in, in, the, in the local cover bands or whatever was happening. I, I, I was playing guitar. I was like, well, no one wants to sing, so I may as well give this a go. So when I went to AIM, I felt that singing was my weakest point because I'd started at the latest. So I majored in uh, contemporary voice at AIM but also kept up guitar lessons with some of the teachers at AIM, some great, some great jazz players, um, Tim Rollinson and Sam Rollings and Jeremy Sorkins, um, few of the teachers that were there at the time. Um, and that's my degree there. So I spent oh, very cool. Yeah, four years straight out of high school doing and, that. And Mark, Mark Costa was one of the teachers. Eh? Mark yeah, wasn't, yeah. wasn't a one-on-one teacher, but yep. he taught, uh, at, at I think school. it was called Ensemble. Yep. So I had Ensemble class with him, which was, that was great because uh, he would be in the band as well. Ensemble was like a practice band. So it was getting to play in a band with Mark Costa, who's, as you know, like one of the, the best bass players in, in the country. Mm-hmm. That's a great learning experience for a young up-and-coming musician. Um, and he's just yeah, such a sweet guy. And his wife uh, at the time, I don't think they're together anymore, but uh, Tracy Costa was my vocal teacher and she gave me a lot of those light bulb moments where she was able to help me. Because when you start singing so late and your voice is broken, I feel I was very behind and I didn't, I didn't come from uh, having um, a pitched instrument. I came from drums. So all this singing stuff, singing notes and working out how to extend your range, this was all very new to me. I was very, very green and I sounded fucking terrible. But she really was one teacher that helped me a whole lot. Um, yeah. 
Um, now, were you you playing in, in – you were saying earlier you were playing in your sort of garage band stuff. Did that, that keep up? While yeah. You name? Yep. So I've been in this band that sort of just stayed under the one name of um, Outlier. Outlier, yep. Yeah. And it's gone through a few different uh, incarnations. The first one, we spent about 10 years together, which was coming out of high school, and then the guys came to AIM as well. So um, it was myself and a bass player and a drummer, um, all boys, and we stayed together till about 2000, pretty much until I graduated, I think, and then you get to that age where, you know, you've, going your separate ways and everyone's getting jobs and things like that and the band sort of... Just move on. Yeah, it fell apart. And I was really lucky that as that fell apart, um, I met the the bass player who's stayed with me ever since then, which is now coming up to about 11 years and her name's Taya. And um, Rosie, who's a... She was a drum student of mine actually and I was... Oh, you taught drums as well? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I was teaching at um, Hornsby Academy of Music. Right. And she was coming in and doing her um, her HSE at the time and you, you helped them develop some performance pieces for their recital. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be interesting, you know, 16, 17-year-old girl wants to do HSE. And she brings me Tool, Schism, <laughs> um, Dream Theatre, <laughs> Overture 1928 and uh, something else I can't remember. These really complicated pro- progressive rock time signature changing pieces and I'm like, oh, you can play this? She could already play before she came to me. I, right. I, I helped her, you know, understand the time signatures and the pieces and stuff. And I'm like, wow. And I'm like, um, do you want to audition for my band? <laughs> and, yeah, she, uh, she, she nailed the audition. And you know, looking back, what's that? Yeah, like uh, 11, 12, 13 years ago. Yeah. I'm still in the band today. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and what, what year did you come out of AIM? Uh, 2006 was the last year. Right. Yeah, so I finished high school in 2002 and then spent 03, 04, 05, 06. The next four years was all at AIM. Yep. And I graduated. I think the ceremony was at the start of 07. Right. Did you have an idea of what you were going to do as soon as you graduated? Were you playing a lot of gigs at that stage? I wasn't, no. Yep. Um, I don't think I did because you're just so immersed in cramming all that information into your head. Mm. Um. I think I still probably had the dream of that the originals band because we had spent 10 years of our lives, you know, working really hard at it, recording albums, tours, opening for people, you know, doing all the things that original bands do. Any any sort of record label interest? or A uh, little bit, nothing ma- major. I think like we did some showcases for Sony. And okay. There was some indie labels at that time, but nothing ever really amounted to, to anything. Um and then later on when I was with the girls, we kind of got screwed by an independent label that we invested a bit of money in and they turned out to be con artists. So I don't know, you can look at those things and mm. and get really angry. You can say it was all, all all part of the master plan. Yeah. So, yeah, the originals thing, uh, I, I, never, I never really was a natural lyricist or natural songwriter. Like I've been able to write some songs that I think were all right, but... I'm not someone that wakes up every day and gets the pad out. And it's like, yeah, it's a thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. More of, I consider myself more of just a guitarist. Like I love, every day I get up and pick up the guitar and I love to play it and yep. I, I love to entertain people and like I said, be on stage and be part of shows where people are listening. And whether that's playing something like I've written or or a tune that I've done an arrangement of or, or a, just a, a cover song, mm. um, that's what I get the biggest kick out of yep. at, at the moment. Yeah. Mm. So when you came out of AIM, what did you do? 
Um, really annoyed my mom by mm-hmm. just sitting around at home too okay. much, and I right. didn't, didn't have a plan. I was teaching, so I was, Are you teaching? Okay. Yeah, I had um, at one stage seven days a week of students. I would I'd be at. Uh, it's, it's called Big Music at Crow's Nest now. It was mm-hmm. around the corner. It was called Harbour Music at the time. And I was teaching there. I was teaching at the Hornsby Academy. Um, and I was teaching privately. I had kids coming to my place and doing drum lessons and guitar lessons and singing lessons, all that sort of stuff. And then as the, as the band fell apart, which was probably like 2008, thereabouts, um, then I started to have to have a plan B because my whole life had been invested in this band. You know, we'd... Spent so much money on on recording and touring mm. and everything, and mm-hmm. now it's gone. These these guys are they wanted to do another thing, change the name, and I wasn't I wasn't oh, okay. I wasn't into what. So it wasn't a happy, happy nah, split type thing. No, okay. it wasn't wasn't amicable. Okay, yeah, there was yep. some some bad things said and bad blood, and it ended really badly, which which sucks. Mm. But um, and it's still that way. Yeah, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, it's never quite been resolved. Um, well, hopefully down the track. Except for we, we ended up recruiting a keyboardist and him and I uh, had no bad blood and we've remained really good friends. His name's Taras um, and he ended up working with the band Sticky Fingers and he he doesn't enjoy touring so he doesn't he's not in the band as a touring guy but he writes a lot of their songs. Yep. Um, he's got a, a gold aria on his wall for I think Caress Your Soul, a song that he right. co-wrote with them. So I'm really proud of him that he kept with music and and um, he's just one of those people that we just from the from the first day connected and stayed that way, and had no bad blood, which is ironic because he was kind of the reason the band split up. Oh right, <laughs> he, he came into the band and then they were like, oh, well, we want to do this new synth-based music thing that, that he's influencing it. Right. Anyway, yeah, he's he's a lovely guy, but um, yeah, so that all fell apart, and I found myself at uh, twenty three for the first time, no, as solo artist, no band, no. Right. No one uh, around me, which was kind of weird, and that's when um, I auditioned for uh, Australia's Got Talent. Mm. I think that same year, right? Just out of the blue, well, I didn't even own an acoustic, or not a good one back then. So I think I just. I so didn't. how 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 did the audition come apart? Uh, come about? Did you seek it out? Did did the ad come up? Some um, pop up somewhere? Someone tell question. you about it? Or um, I'm curious as to how how those things go down. Yeah, I'm. I know that. The, the idea musically came from just having um, the Boss uh, DD, DD7, I think, delay, which had a hold feature on it, which essentially was a looper. So you could, you, could, you could hold down the pedal and it would take whatever idea you played and then just, you know, loop it back around. And I used to just play around with this looper and just build up these orchestrations of things. And I thought, that's really cool. Like, they should, they should have a pedal that does just that. And, of course, they did, but I didn't know about it. Right. Um, and so I just I can't remember. It must have been I think the internet had had come around by 2009. So I might have seen the ad online. Mm. Um, so using that that looper or not? It wasn't a looper. Using that delay pedal, I did a version of Hit the Road Jack, um, where I bashed out a beat and recorded some vocal looping harmonies and made a little one man band version of that and. It was very poorly filmed and everything, but I sent that to them, to Australia's Got Talent. So I must have seen their application online or something. Okay. But it's kind of strange because I'd never thought 
to do anything like that. But I think those kind of shows, uh, obviously Idol had been around since 03. Mm. So those kind of shows were a big part of pop culture at that time. Um, was that the first year of Australia's Got Talent? Mine was the third. Third, okay, right. Yeah. Okay. That was season three. Okay. Um, and also YouTube was becoming, just starting to become a really big deal. That same year was the year that um, Susan Boyle right. Oh, blew right. Okay. up and right. Paul Potts and Adam Lambert. All these people all over the world were just becoming viral sensations from um, Britain's Got Talent and America's yeah, Got Talent. Yeah, yeah. So I think that probably was maybe the catalyst of me being curious. Oh, maybe I could go on one of these things. Or, yeah. Because I don't have a band. So <laughs> um, just I had never really been super confident as a singer and definitely never as a solo artist because I had never tried it. So it was just something to, I guess, boost my confidence or a challenge that, that you know, if you if you sign up for this, you're going to have to work your butt off and get good. And, and I, I probably needed some. It's good to have those motivating factors. It's good to have... Oh, in my case, I got really good feedback, you know, I get, but if it had been bad feedback, then I could have taken that on board and, mm. you know, take, taken those things and used them to get better because a lot of the time the feedback that you get is not what you want to hear. Like, I distinctly remember if you go back just a couple of years at my um, – my cat's just going to make some noise. What do you want? I've got cats. A couple of my cats have quite – Quite a few times made a nuisance of themselves when I've interviewed people at home. Okay. He's, he's scared of you. That's why <laughs> oh, right. he, he poked his head in and he poked it back out. <laughs> um, so at the end of my degree, we do a recital where you show everything that you've learned in the past four years. And one of the teachers, I won't name him, um, at the end of my recital came up to me and you know, I said, what do you think? I was so proud of myself. I thought I'd done really well. He said, mate, your, um, your guitar playing was awesome but – should get a shit hot singer for your band. That's what it's missing. And I was the singer. So, like, that crushed me, you know. I'd just done a four-year degree and to have this teacher that I looked up to basically say, you don't really cut it as a singer. He was right. I wasn't very good. Mm. Um, it's not what I wanted to hear at the time. Mm. It was like when you had Dawano on the show and he yeah. said, people don't always tell you what you want to hear, yeah. but it's what I needed to hear because yeah. I, I was like, oh, I need to do some work. My options were either um, get be a guitarist exclusively and and do BVs and get other singers, or get my act together and and really start working on my voice. Because like I said to you before, like guitar had always come first to me. Singing came so much later. I always struggled to get the singing to keep up with that the, the level that the guitar was at. Mm. Um, so it took a lot of time. And Australia's Got Talent was a big motivating factor in getting my voice to a decent level that I would be confident to sing in front of people. And I still didn't think I was the, anything special, but that first audition, you know, like I said, it was the right thing at the right time and all of a sudden it's on TV and then it's on YouTube and a few weeks later it's got like six million hits. Mm. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> so what was the mindset? How were you, how'd you deal with that? The With the popularity of yeah. it? Yeah. Um, well, it was all really good feedback and it was the first time that people were actually really saying to me, oh, man, this guy's got an incredible voice and, mm. and you, should, you should win the show. And, um, so that, I think you need those reaffirming validations of what you're doing every so often. I mean, you can, you can go for a long time without getting any, but they're really the things that 
push you to go, all right, I'm on to something here, you know. Mm. I'm, I'm on the right track. And I really thought, you know, just, just as like when I was in original band, I thought we would be the next Fallout Boy or whatever. Then I, at that time I thought, oh, great, I've, I've made it. Like, Sony's involved with this show and they're going to sign me. And there were some great things that came out of it. Like I found myself on the morning show one day playing one of my arrangements and I found myself at the Cole Clark factory talking about them doing a signature guitar for me. <laughs> okay. I, I just want to I just want to um, mention the Guitar Speak podcast and Matt. Um, people... I will link it in the show notes, but but um, Jay's done a couple of interviews on the Guitar Speak podcast. Um, now, I was listening to one of those interviews today, mm-hmm. and you didn't name that company. No, I didn't. Nah, okay. you said I'm not going to name their name, okay. <laughs> but they had a signature line guitars. So I just sorry, I just yeah. heard you say the name, and I went ah. Well, it was I was dealing with um, Brad Clark, who's half of the name, and he's since left the company. There was some bad blood there, or something. Right. I don't really know what happened. Uh, it was just one of those things where. Um, you're on the show and he, Brad came to the first, I think he came to both auditions actually. He came to watch me perform Down Under and he loved it. He came, I think, to uh, watch me do Run to Paradise in the semis. And so we were talking. I had had these ideas that I wanted, uh, just like this guitar here, I wanted an acoustic that had uh, an electric pickup that so you could blend, so you could have acoustic sounds and then also plug into your amp. And there wasn't... This, so this is a, a called a Godan or a Godin. Mm-hmm. It's a Canadian guitar. There's not really a whole lot of guitars that do this. And being an Aussie and being with this Aussie brand, and I really liked the sound of the Cole Clark pickup. I wanted to um, have a Cole Clark hybrid that would basically do what this does. And we went back and forth and then, you know, I didn't, I didn't progress any further in the show and then their communication just kind of cut off. Straight away, nothing. Oh, just, you know, just kind of, they call it ghosting these days ghosting, in, the, in yeah. the dating world. You right. just start, instead of uh, hearing back every day, all of a sudden you're hearing back every two weeks or not at all or every month or they're not picking up your calls. And uh, this, so it could have been related to that, that Brad ended up not being with the company anymore. So, they, they, oh, I see. Okay. There could have been some issues there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, some new person comes in, like, well, who's this guy? I don't know him. So I had I had the relationship with Brad and it's kind of a shame but, um, yeah, those things kind of sting at the time when you're a young, impressionable yeah. 23-year-old and mm. you're excited about these new connections and then… That's a couple of early hits too, you know, with your band breaking up and yeah. thinking, you know, and then getting shit on by, the, by those people losing that money. Yeah, yeah. And now, yeah, I, I, can't, ima- I can't imagine because, you know, I mean, you got popular really quick. Mm. Um. Yeah, whole country knew who you were. I fa- I found out who you were back then. <laughs> back then. Oh, really? Yeah. Did um, you see it on the on the telly? Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah. Oh, no yeah, way. It was awesome, man. Thanks, really man. good. Um, it's funny because I because of the YouTube um, video, I get more people saying that they have seen it online than than have seen it on telly. Yeah, no, no, I, w- I watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that would have. Yeah, it would have taken the wind out of yourselves for sure. Yeah, it did. Um, but there was there were so many positives with with getting that that validation and just knowing that all these hours I've put in, which was a lot. There was a lot of obsessive practice. Like, I know I'm the sort of person that, like, if I've got to play a song and I know I have you know two or three months to prepare, 
that's the only song I'll listen to in those three months. And right, okay. I'm exaggerating. Like I'll have it on repeat in the car. Okay. I'll have it on repeat in the gym. I'll come home and I'll play it right, 100 okay. times. Okay. Like I'll obsess. It's, when it's, a, when okay. it's something on that level, when you know that potentially 2 million people are going to watch it. Um, and this was the first opportunity of that scale that I had had. So I wasn't going to let it slip through my fingers. And that's that's been my mentality ever since. I think that taught me good discipline because ever since then, any time the door opens a little crack for me, I try to really, you know, make sure I kick that door down. Mm. I think that's really important because you don't, the last thing you ever want to do is be able to say, I could have I could have probably done better. Mm. I don't want to ever be able to say that. Yeah. Yeah, whether it succeeds or not, um, you've got to focus on what you can control and what you can control is your preparation. Yeah. That's really it. And if and if everyone shits on it or you get trolls or goes well or you get to the finals of your whatever you're on or you don't you can't control any of that stuff you can just only control your own preparation really did you find yourself reading all the comments that you were getting yeah absolutely yeah yeah and most of the uh, so six million hits is spread around a few uploads yeah yeah yeah. so there's one with about three there's one with about two and then there's a few others in the in the hundred thousands and most of them are uploaded by me so i had control over that which was a good thing because mm-hmm. the trolley comments I could just delete, delete and ignore. Them. Right. And surprisingly, like out of 6 million views, I would say probably like conservatively maybe 5 to 7% were hateful, mean things. Right. So it was, it was a very well-received audition. But then you do, obviously, you're going to get those people like that just don't like you and that want to bring you down. And the one thing that every musician has in common is that not everyone likes them. <laughs> No matter if yep. you're Eric Clapton or if you're Robin Ford or if you're Santana, it doesn't matter who you are, not everyone likes you. Yep. And that was a, a easy, quick way for me to learn that. that you can have this video, I don't know, if, if you went and looked at it now, that it's got the thumbs up, the thumbs down. You know, there's a few thousand thumbs up and there's probably, I don't know, a few hundred thumbs down. Right, but awesome. You just have to cop that. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's going to like you. So, and some people are going to go out of their way to tell you how much they don't like you. <laughs> and if they want to do that, like, you know, good on them. Yeah. Um, trolls, trolls will be trolls. <laughs> Haters going to hate, as Taylor Swift once said. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm in a band. We re- released a song a few years ago and um, <laughs> we got this one troll message um, on one of the Instagram posts or something like that. <laughs> and... One of the guys in the band took it to heart, so oh, he really? made this video. He just made this video and just shot down this troll. You mm. know? Do you let? Did you let it affect you? Or oh, I laughed. I laughed, laughed about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's quite funny because I, I think I wrote a, like a really happy reply comment. I love doing that. Yeah, like I mean, <laughs> thank you for taking the time to blow and have a lovely day and you know, that, yeah. that kind of thing and appreciate you taking the time and maybe have another listen. You know, mm. but yeah, my other mate, he just. <laughs> he made this video and just just shot this troll down. And, oh man, it's funny like that approach. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the time, um, I think people think they're anon- anonymous. And even like now, my thing is like posting guitar lesson videos. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Mm. So and and I'll post them and I because I'm trying to help. I think I usually get a great response. Again, probably like a ninety five percent good response. But you're going to get the trolls. And it's funny like I don't know if they don't think that I read it or something, but they'll say something 
and then I'll just say back, you know, thanks for your feedback. Cheers. Have a great day. Good luck with your music career. Right. Something sort of like a little bit tongue-in-cheek but nice. Like, yep. Oh, best of luck with your playing, mate. Yep. And then like, a lot of the time they'll respond to that and like retract what they said. Like, oh, oh sorry. I, I, I didn't I didn't. Oh, really? That. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so I think a lot of the time there's that that thing where they feel like anonymous because, or like they feel invincible because or, they, or maybe they don't think that the person in the video will actually read what they wrote. Mm. Because, you know, if, if they go and insult uh, a Lady Gaga video, chances are she's not ever going to see it. Yeah. Um, but when they, you know, someone like me who's self-promoting, I, I read all these things. And that's funny because when you when anybody does reply to one of their comments, it goes to the top. That's it. the top of the list. Yeah, the more likes. So the next that person gets. that gets there, they're going to see. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. I heard something interesting. I think it was Louis C.K. was saying that mm. this, this uh, sort of social media generation – is, is a generation without empathy because in his day and in, in my day and in your day before internet, if you bullied someone or if you were mean and said something hurtful, you'd see their reaction in their face. Yep. You'd see them cry or they'd get angry. Or, and that taught you empathy. Like, oh, if I, if I call this person a such and such, that hurts their feelings or that, you know, we got that instant feedback. But these days someone trolls someone, they probably don't ever see what it does to that person. It's just it's out there. Yep. It's it's maybe affected them. It's maybe not. But they don't know. Yep. So they're developing this lack of empathy, where they can be keyboard warriors, say whatever mm. they want, and there's mm-hmm. no consequences to it. And it's kind of it's a bit scary that this it's it's raised a generation of numb, you know, trolly people. And I see it all the time. I scroll through my newsfeed. There'll be those sponsored posts, whether it's a, a personal trainer or a, a, someone trying to sell their guitar lessons. Guaranteed that. Click on the comments and the, the top three or four comments is probably going to be some person putting them down. Right. It's that tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. This person's trying to get themselves somewhere. Let's cut them down. I haven't had one negative comment on my podcast yet. Oh, that's and great. I'm No, well, I'm dreading the day I get one. No, no. Just kidding. Um, you, you made it through to the semifinals, is that right? Yeah. Yep. Now, when you didn't get through, how did you handle that? And, and what was what was the what sort of happens backstage straight after that and the next day? Are you kind of like, right? Thanks for coming. You you gone? Pretty much. Um, right. Yeah. Always I mean, been curious as to what happens in well, those situations. The show was very new, like third season. Um, it felt really disorganised and poorly communicated to me. I don't know. I guess part of that is that they have to keep certain things in secrecy, but. I really wasn't told a whole lot throughout the whole process at all. It was very like a couple of emails back and forth. Oh, what song would you like to do? Oh, I might do this. Yeah, do that. And and the same thing with not being on the show. Like we did our semis. One person gets through and then the other person that gets through is, is decided by the public. So we're just waiting and waiting and waiting and we don't hear anything. And I didn't hear anything until the day that the show went to air and I was still thinking, well, could it be me? And then the show went to air and on the show that went to air, um, they went to someone's house and knocked on their door and like, oh, it's you, you're, you're, you're the one that's it – was a, it was a guy that played a saw, like a, oh, right. a, okay. a band saw sort of thing. Um, so he was the one that got the spot. But So I found out just the same time that the rest of the public found out basically. Just kind of I guess, I guess there's non-disclosure and secrecy that they have to keep, but that kind of sucked. Mm. It's not the best way to find something like that out. Yeah. Turning the TV on and find out that you're not making it through. 
Shit. That's uh, the nature of the beast. Mm. And um, most, most. Oh, so you went, you went, you went actually at the studio no, I was next all... to the person. And so, so what happens is, um, like, yeah, like I said, two people from each round go through. Right. One person is chosen by the judges. Right. And the next person is voted by the public. Which you're at home at the stage. Yeah, and... because it's all pre-taped. Oh, right. Okay, gotcha. So we did, did these tapes months before. And then they go to air, and then there's a few weeks for the waiting for the public to vote. Oh right, okay. And every day, you know, I, I voted for myself a few hundred times, but right. um, every day you're just waiting to hear something, and yeah. and you don't really know anything. And I think the communication has probably gotten better sure. now. Um, when I did the I did the voice recently, and it was like a well-oiled machine. It was mm. The complete opposite of that, like right, just interviews and emails and. People you can call, and there's a psychiatrist there, and it's just just a completely different experience to what I had the first time. But I think, right. yeah, like they, these sort of shows were just new, and they probably didn't know that the psychological effect that it can have on someone mm. coming up and coming coming out of it. Mm. So yeah, I think it's gotten, I think it's improved. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so we're too straight after the um, Australia's Got Talent. Um. Kind of like a rebuild, get yourself. Yeah, well, because you would have been ha- you would have been hanging on, like yeah. just waiting. Couldn't make plans. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd said no to a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, the a couple of good things that came out of it was um, doing the Run to Paradise song and connected with with Mark right, Gable, right. Um, and he had asked me to do a tour with the Choir Boys as their guitarist, and I had to say no to it. You know, uh, which is kind of that was my one of my first big. Um, doors opening at the time of like right, you know right. it could have it could have led me down the road of being a, a a great session player right but because of everything that was happening with TV I couldn't commit to what he was asking uh, which was a shame but again ended up coming full circle and I ended up doing some more stuff with the Choir Boys much later in life um, or quite quite recently um, so it was just yeah coming out of that show and like all right here's what on the positive, you've got this video that's gone viral. You've got you've made some connections with some labels and some music brands. Now what? And I think uh, people that do these shows probably don't have a plan. Mm. And I didn't really have one either, but I just came up with, well, I've got, got to market myself, got to get an agency, got to start doing gigs. I've got to use these. I've got these promo videos that if I tried to film these myself, they would probably cost thirty grand a yeah, piece easily. Yeah, yeah right. But, you know, six or seven camera shoot, and yeah, you know that would cost you a fortune to make those. Mm. Um, so okay, did I've, they give you? Did they say you can have the stuff and do with it what you like? Or no? Uh, they didn't say yeah, I can't. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> no, but you upload it to YouTube, and then um, it gets picked up by the creative license of Fremantle Media or whoever. Like okay. they've got um, algorithms in there that can sense the copyrighted material. Right. So if they if it's not allowed, which the stuff from The Voice, they're pretty uh, – like if I upload something from The Voice to YouTube, it gets muted or taken down straight away. Right. So I guess they're – So you need separate permission. I guess so. Yeah. I, I guess they own all that content. And yeah. They, they yeah. don't want people sharing it. Which is however however they want to operate, mm-hmm. but every time I've uploaded the Channel Seven stuff, there hasn't been. The only thing that happens is I think um, the men at work aspect of it gets so that that, that Colin Hay will get the royalties or right. whatever. So um, yeah, it picks up the, the copyright of the song, but it doesn't pull down the video. 
Right. Yeah. Mm. Just so. on the Colin Hay thing, he he um, I, I read in your bio that he he heard that, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Did did he actually speak to you himself? Yeah. Well, awesome. so so what what happened? Um, is that's the other thing with me is like I'm very uh, I guess persistent and pushy and self. I didn't have an agent for most of this, so. Um, I would just try to network and when I was playing uh, Mark Gable's song, I reached out to him and I said, man, I'd like to sing Run to Paradise on telly and would you like to meet up and could I have a chat with you? Right. And same with Colin Hay. Um, I reached out to Cecilia Knoll, who's his partner, his wife. Um, this was through MySpace at the time. And I had done the Down Under and I just sent, sent through the YouTube clip to her and I just said, um, I've just done this thing on TV and it's, it's done quite well in Australia and... Um, I'd love it if you uh, if you could show it to Colin and let me know what he thinks. And she she wrote back a really glowing message. She said, you know, Colin and I both loved it, and oh, great. so proud of you, and that's fantastic. And keep in touch with us, and good luck. And then he actually played just here in Dy at Lazotte's, um, which doesn't exist anymore. Yep, but uh, probably 2012 or something. A few years later, which is a very small venue, and he did the meet and greet after and. I just went up to him and I said, I said, hey, Colin. And I, I just said, oh, I was really nervous. It was one of those fanboy moments because <laughs> yeah. he had sort of gone through a, a similar thing, obviously at, at a super global scale that Men at Work was the biggest band in the world and then all of a sudden they were gone mm-hmm. and they're broken up and he had to, he went from playing, you know, Rock in Rio, 80,000, 90,000, I don't know how many people, to playing at the Bridge Hotel to seven people. You know, and then, um, and then all the copyright stuff. Yeah, and, and then oh, get, man. Greg Ham killing himself. himself and yep. So he'd gone through this process of um, having the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, and then rebuilding himself as a, um, a solo artist. And he's done really, really well at that, and been able to actually make himself into his own brand. Um, well, dude, he plays in Ringo Starr's band well, now. There, man. there you go. What? Yeah, the Ringo Starr <laughs> this, all star band. Yeah, with Lukather and and. Um, Greg Bissonette and, you know, Colin Hay and Ringo yeah. Starr on Ringo's private jet, you know, good on him. It's yeah. not, not a bad gig to get. No, not, not at all. He has this great story where he's like, uh, he says he'll pinch himself sometimes and he'll look over at Ringo on the drums and he'll be like, he'll just they'll have this telepathic moment where he'll look at him and he'll be like, wow, you're Ringo Starr. <laughs> and, and Ringo will give him a look back that says, I know. <laughs> Um, so true. Peace yeah. and love. Peace and love. <laughs> but yeah, so I got to meet him at Lazotte's and I just nervously went up to him and I said, um, do you remember like that uh, guy that played Down Under on Australia's Got Talent? Um, did you, your wife ever show you that bit? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. That was brilliant. And I was like, oh, that was me. And he's like, no way. And just had a, had a little chat with him. And Great. He was very warm. And uh, if you've ever seen him in interviews, he's a total sweetheart. And Yep. Super witty sense of humor, and uh, he remembered me and um, asked me what I was doing with myself. And there's a small chance that I might get to play play the song with him next month. He's, wow! He's coming here to the Enmore in uh, April, and I've connected with his uh, publicist or person that does his web management, a guy named Raphael, and just sit, floated the possibility of like getting up with them and doing that so fingers crossed uh mm. it, it might not happen because he's bringing out the whole band right which i i thought he might be just doing the solo thing yep but um yeah anything like that that comes along those those things are are awesome and I'd, I'd be super happy if something like that could happen yeah yeah cool so back onto the rebuild after the 
The rebuild. Yeah. Well, it's the rebuild was just um, back to reality. Like, what do you do with your life now? And it's. I thought it was going to be all glamorous and Learjets and fancy hotels, but the reality was pub gigs, which a lot of people that come off those shows, they end up doing all the same yep. gigs as me anyway. Mm. And it's no shame in that. Probably um, a little bit, little bit different because your profile's raised now and people would specifically be coming out to see you. And Yeah, it, well, it definitely helps. And like I always say to people, you know, if, if there's 10 bands being submitted for whatever corporate gig it is or a festival or whatever – and you're able to, you know, have in your bio you were on such and such TV show. Yeah. That always is a good little foot in the door. Of course. So I think it probably did make life a little bit easier for me in um, in rebuilding. Um, but I was just doing every terrible pub gig that paid very little that came along, mm-hmm. and building up the connections and the network and, you know, years and years of doing that. Until until eventually you can start saying, like I said, saying no to those certain things and doing more of the shows that fulfil you creatively, like the concept shows and yep. whatnot. Mm-hmm. But so some of the other good connections, so obviously Colin Hay was a great contact, Mark Gable was a great contact, but I also made contact with Boss, um, the pedal company, because I didn't have a looper going into doing that. I was using the, the delay pedal. And Boss is just here in DY actually, mm. which is is very convenient and I approached them. I said, I've got this TV audition coming up next week. Um, I don't have a loop pedal. Like, do you guys have yeah. anything? So a um, guy named Jim went over and met him and tried out a few of their things and it was the, the RC50 was the looper at the time. And, yeah, it gave me a good deal on it. Mm. Gave me gave me a boss strap to wear. Yeah, was, yeah, you told the story in the guitar speak. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So, um but that connection was great because, you know, like they um, they stayed in contact and it wasn't until 2014 that I sort of heard from them again, which is a few years down the track. Yep. But I mean, it's, it's just a key thing is to like make good relationships and keep them and don't lose your cool because you never know when someone's going to, your name might pop up. And it's happened to me so many times where years later something comes along where my name is stuck in someone's head for some reason and and yeah, so they called me to go up to Jupiter's Casino in Queensland and play at the AMAC Festival, which or AMAC Convention. It's kind of like a music trade expo, right? Is it like an Aussie Nam type thing? Or um, the Melbourne Guitar Show is more like that. Okay, um, AMAC was more for um, people behind the scenes. Okay. So I don't think it was open to the public. It's for shop owners and distributors right. and. Got you. Yeah, those sorts of people. Um, but that was cool, you know. I got got to meet um, ever, ever, all the big head honchos of all the big major brands in the country and the CEOs of Boss and everyone and um, got paid to sit around and play these instruments all day. It's awesome. Like um, it's one of those opportunities that you just you pinch yourself and you do your best and you hope they'll ring again. Right. Which they didn't until 2016. So it was, right. again, another couple of years later. But, mm. um, and that was the Melbourne Guitar Show thing, mm. which was an, another, like, incredible thing, like, you know, just being around every good guitarist in the country, standing at a booth, operating, um, demonstrating boss pedals, um, getting flown to Melbourne, getting put up, um, yeah, I don't know, just counting my blessings when things like that Great. come along. 
Have you ever had to work a, a normal nine to five type job? Uh, once, just throughout the last year of high school, I was a oh right, okay, a waiter in an Indian restaurant. Right, okay. I actually, I, I did little. Were you teaching as well? Yeah, so I was always yep. teaching. So okay. I guess that's a normal, normal ish job. Mm-hmm. And I did little things um, like my parents owned tile shops, so I would like work in the warehouse or okay. help them out or um, little bits and pieces. But the only time I really like had a boss and worked for someone else was this Indian restaurant in Barara to get a bit of extra cash. Um, yeah, again, very lucky that I've never had to really do a job. I've never had to work. Right, cool. <laughs> and I've had girlfriends that think my life is this ridiculous fantasy and sometimes I don't really, I guess, appreciate or realise it. But when somebody coming from a very nine-to-five world gets to view it and gets to live with you and goes, do you know how ridiculous this is that you, like, sleep all day and then get, get paid to play music all night and um, yeah it's 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 a bit of a sometimes I feel like I'm in a movie about my life you know mm. you're just going along for this ride you're doing a lot of those like you know like pe- repetitive pub gigs and then the phone will ring and you'll find yourself on a plane some crazy place or you know playing next to one of your idols or on a tv show yeah it's just some um, some pretty crazy things happen every now and then. Yeah, it's a trip. Now, tell us about um, All Together Now. Well, that was definitely one of those yeah. weird moments because, you know, so 2016 I had done The Voice and not, not gotten through, not gotten very... Oh, sorry, okay. Can we, well, let's just step back to that a little bit. Um, so how far did you get in The Voice? Nowhere. N- nowhere. No, so they didn't... No one they, turned. They didn't yeah. turn, okay. Which was weird because... And what was the comments after? Well, it was, the weird thing was that... Um, I had no intention on going back on one of these shows, but they approached me. Oh, okay. That, like that, they needed a rock singer for the for the show. Like, it was like they have their criteria they need to fill. I was like, yeah, sure. And I gave them a list of songs, and they picked Led Zeppelin. Like, they picked the rockiest thing that I had suggested. So I thought, all right, if I do a good job of this, they, it seems like they've got a place for me. And then they went and put me on like the last day of filming towards the very end of the day when all of the places in the judges' teams are filled. And once their places are filled, they can't really, like, turn anymore. They can't mm. once they've accumulated their 12 uh, contestants or whatever. Did you know at the time they'd all been filled? Um, I think, yeah, reports were coming back like, oh, Jessie's just turned and oh, she's only got two left. So we knew that it was very sparse. But then, like, if you look at my audition, they they aired it at the front end of the show and they've got – all the judges are like teasing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I watched, should, I watched yeah. the the thing today. So a lot of that teasing was kind of strange because in reality, the, Mad- the Madden brothers, and then mm, in reality, I, don't, I think only two of them had a spot left. But all of them were like, "Oh, should I turn?" So a lot of that's just for show, I guess. Of course, yeah. um, and I again, I worked really hard on that uh, performance. That was a song that, if you had asked me probably a year before to sing, I wouldn't have been comfortable singing it in the original key. Uh, it's very, you know, Led Zeppelin, that's iconic vocals there. So I worked really hard on my voice and just listened to the song every day on repeat. Had Chris Cornell's version from the Santana album, had Adam Lambert's version, had the Led Zeppelin version. Um, just, just listening to everyone's interpretations and, and trying to come up with my own. Um, and then, yeah, no one no one turned, which was, again, like, you know, you can look at those things as a, as a rejection or as a bit of a slap in the face, but I chose to like have a sense of humor about it and make the little Delta comment. And 
What was that? Sorry, I hope oh, I didn't see it. I you didn't. <laughs> um, well, she Delta Goodrum commented that she loved what I did and she would love to come and watch me play. And I said to her, "You wouldn't fit in at the pubs and stuff that I play in." <laughs> and she said, "No, no, I've, I mean it. I would really like to." And I said, "All right. So does that mean that we have a date?" And she said, "Yes." And everyone laughed, and that was kind of the end of it. And then the next day um, I turned on my computer and I've got like 150 messages and inboxes and screen grabs and it was on the front page of 9MSN that this smooth-talking rock star scores a date with Delta Goodrum. (laughs) The front page of 9MSN. And then uh, it was on the Daily Mail in Australia and then it was on the Daily Mail in the UK. And it was just all over the place, and like so, it was kind of strange that for a Man. for a failed audition, you know, something that that didn't get through, I got all this uh, crazy publicity. Yeah, but again, it's just one of those things where you take whatever they give you and you work with it. You know, I, I could have stood there like a like a wet fish and just said nothing and been grumpy and powdered and yep, why didn't you turn? You know, but I had a laugh with them, and and like and you know that bit of publicity kind of. Any publicity is good publicity, I for guess. For sure, it's man. Nice little, nice little profile boost. There's a bit of publicity for the voice as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> win-win. But yeah. I think uh, that was that was another, you know, big moment of like improving my confidence in my singing because I again didn't really ever consider myself a strong singer, and then they chose that song for me out of my list. I'm like, well, you're gonna have to step up your game to sing that song. Did you obsess over that? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I really wanted to do it justice and really wanted to do it in the original key and not be like, you know, right. people that sing. Oh, you, you got to choose the key? Yeah. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yeah, no, they were, they were cool with that. Yep. We started in E-flat. Um, the, guy, the keyboardist is um, Scott. Um, Scott Applin, the keyboardist in the band, and he, he organises all the key checks and everything. And they're, re- like I said before, like well-oiled machine. Really you go backwards and forwards. Yep. They have to cut it down to 90 seconds. So they help, they let me sort of dictate the arrangement as well because it's like a, like a five-minute song, I guess, normally. So that chopping that down to 90 seconds, you want to get the key bits in there. So Scott was really cool. We started in E-flat and I was like, worked really hard. And I was like, no, I'd like to do it in the original key. Is it too late? And he's like, no, no, we'll change it. We'll move it up. And that was great. Um Made a connection with Michael Dolce, who's in the in the house band there. Yep. Incredible uh, legato style, freak guitar player. Um, Bryden Stace, who was the vocal coach or the performance coach on The Voice. Um, so there's all these great connections that come about. And whether or not you win or lose or get through, um, like I said, Carmel. I met Carmel that day. She didn't get through either. And like I said, she's a freak vocalist. Right. She, her her little backstory there was that she was Delta Goodrum's vocal coach. She had like taught Delta growing up. Oh, so the backstory was going to be like, oh, you taught Delta, and now you're singing to her, and and no one turned for her. And again, it's like they asked her to come on. Yeah. They wanted this cool little backstory that she was Delta's um, coach growing up, right. and then you know they embarrass her. They don't press their button, and they didn't even televise her. Yeah. So like, I was again sort of a bit a bit lucky that. There was some humour in my audition and maybe that's why they decided to televise it because it was a failed, failed audition essentially. Right. And out of um, 180 that they audition, a lot, of the, a lot of those tapes never see the light of day. Yep. You know, they only 
generally show the people that are either really good that get through or that are really bad that yep. are going to make a talking point. Of course. And so mine had, I guess, the talking point of, of the Delta thing. Um, so, yeah, really, really good connections. Um, Carmel, who I ended up working with, Michael Dolce, I ended up get, going to a bunch of his guitar clinics. Yep. And um, he's a lovely guy. Uh, all together now. So how did that come about? Yeah, so <laughs> that was um, probably around the same time, 2016. I was doing this um, Thursday gig at O'Malley's, which is just a, a pub in Kings Cross. And it's weird, like some of the coolest things that have happened in my in my life and in my career have happened at this really crappy little hostel backpacker type pub. So it's not the classiest of joints. But just completely coincidentally, um, the manager of O'Malley's at the time was good friends with this uh, lady, Amelia. Um, she was sort of in the TV business and did some stuff like that. And that she had a night off, so she brought her friend Amelia to come and watch and I was playing there. And that was the end of it. This is 2016. Never didn't hear anything from her again. And then out of nowhere last year, 2018, so this is two years later, I get an inbox from Amelia. She's saying, um, look, we're looking for um, for rock singers for this new show we're doing all together now for to be a, a judge on this panel. Um, and I remembered you from O'Malley's and, um, you know, Julia Zamiro and Ronan Keating's involved. And I had sung to Ronan on, on The Voice previously, so there was a connection there as well. Would you like to, you know, be a part of it? I'm like, um, yes, of course, obviously. So just really randomly that, uh, like, I, like I say to people, you know, you, you've got to treat every gig like it's like you're playing a stadium. And, and that night I probably happened to be playing to, like, I don't know, 15, 20 people on a Thursday night, 10 p.m., till 1.30 in the morning, not that much money. So not a glamorous gig by any means, but those non-glamorous gigs can always lead to other things, which in this case it did and was a really fun, crazy experience to just um, go behind the scenes on because I'd been, like, like I said, been a part of these shows a couple of times before from the contestant perspective. But, yeah, being on the other side and seeing it, how it all operates and how the machine works and... And, and and networking with all these these other judges, Mark Gable again. So that was another nice nice moment. I got to sit next to him on this judging panel after um, looking up to him for so many years and and singing his song on TV. Um, got to be in the studio with Ronan Keating and record the the opening track, which was that was really cool because out of a hundred judges, I think only you know eight or nine of us got to be on that opener. Great, and so I got to there was this line in the song that required a big belty note and we, we were modelling everything we did on the UK version of the show. The UK version had a classical guy going, I've got the music in me. <laughs> but they wanted a rock voice for that particular line so they were like, do you think you could belt out that note but like in a sort of an Axley Rose kind of way? And yeah, I think I can do that. So I did my interpretation of that and they liked it and got to film a film clip with them so... Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. If you had asked me like the year before, you know, what are you going to be doing next year? That wasn't high on my, <laughs> on my, my, my guessing list. Yeah, yeah. And, and did anything come out of that? Well, the connections, connections, again, are yeah. great because yeah. oh, you're just surrounded by 
99 freaks, in, I mean that in the most complimentary way, mm-hmm. um, people in all different specific areas of the industry but elite, you know, people, um, Kelly Crawford who's from High Five, um, Rhonda Birchmore who's a musical theatre legend, um, Jackie Dark who's a classical opera legend and Andrew De Silva who's a Boom Crash opera lead mm. vocalist and um, Australia's Got Talent winner. There's just oh, hundreds of or uh, literally a hundred of them. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we all actually stay in touch on this little closed private Facebook group so cool. we, we see what each other are up to and um, I've never really been part of anything like that because I, I think that would be similar to if you were in musical theatre where you're part of this team that does, yep. yeah, this community that does the same show every day for m- weeks or months at a time, and it's a nice feeling. It's cool. So, I'm, like I said, I'm usually the one in control with my band, yeah, three or four people. Yeah, but it was cool to be just part of this team, and every day we would do um, a, like a group song, so like a hundred piece choir, mm. and that would open each show. Um, and Gary Pinto was the the, the band leader for that who was in the in um, CDB. CDB, yep. Yeah. So like, you know, getting to work with him and just seeing how his brain works. Um, yeah, just um, I'll if we do a season two, that would be awesome. But if we don't, um, I'll always look back on that as just a really incredible experience. Cool. And you wouldn't have had that pressure of being a contestant, no. eh? You just, yeah. That was great. You're part of the crew. Yeah. Like I said, like I always um, – Obsess and listen to the songs on yeah, repeat, right. and, and yeah. I, there was a little bit of that because we did have to learn, learn these the songs, yeah. by our arrangements. But sure. you know, there's not the pressure of um, standing up in front of a hundred judges and singing and being judged. Like I was just part of the choir, so I would learn my little harmonies and memorize them and try to do my best. And the ratings did really well, and we're we're up for a couple of logies, and yeah, right. Hopefully, awesome. it gets a season two because I think it was their highest rated new show of the year. Great. So, yeah, there's going to be Australia's Got Talent again. Um, they're bringing that back, like, soon. Okay. And then after that, because I don't think they'll do both, you know, competing with themselves, after Australia's Got Talent is finished, fingers crossed, they do a season two. Awesome. That's great. Now um, let's talk a bit about your Instagram. You got close to 10,000 followers on there. And you, like you said earlier, you do – um like free online lessons and it's yeah. a, is it your practice and then you just draw it up on a board pretty much yeah you can see yeah. the board behind me yeah yeah um yeah kind of just yeah just kind of started like that like you say like and that, and does this come back to again listen to the guitar speak podcast episode um with Jay you talk about on that podcast the moment where you started filming yourself to to put a little bit more pressure on yourself mm yeah, is it is it that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, you, you, know, you said before we started that you hate the sound of your own voice. Yeah, and it's I feel the same way. I hate the sound of my own singing. I hate the sound of my own guitar playing. But there's nothing better for you than hearing it back, seeing what it sounds like, completely raw, you know, unpolished, no auto tune. What do you sound like? Listen back to it, and I'm probably the worst critic of myself. You know, worse worse than what any troll could say to me. Um, I'll I'll think worse of myself, and I'll I'll hear all the little bits and things. But doing those those online videos, um, yeah, it's like it's sort of a challenge to yourself to get better and to to hear yourself back and to to create. You know, every day you you 
pick up this guitar and it's a blank slate. I can do anything with it. So can I come up with something interesting that other guitarists will want to learn? And the, the most successful video, um, which on Facebook got like uh, 100,000 views or so, it was funny because that was like the most simple one. It was just me. Basically I'd, I'd, I made a video of about 10 minutes of what was usually my lesson one for all my students over the years, which was how to learn the names of the notes on the guitar. Right. And because I guess in my non, non-internet generation, that was sort of really important. But in the internet generation, there's tabs, which is what I used to teach, but it's also it doesn't teach you the notes. Yep. It just teaches you numbers and number friends. Number and a picture, yep. Yeah, so I just created this video and I didn't have the whiteboard at the time so I wrote it on one of these giant pieces of paper and it just, it's called Learning the Note Names and it's just how to, you know, the piano has the 12 notes and the, the white keys and the black keys. So it's, a, it's just a really, you could almost show this video to like an eight-year-old and that yep. it would make sense to them. How to convert those 12 notes into, well, it's essentially how to see the white notes and if you can see all the white notes and you know where they are, then you can sort of extrapolate that there's black notes in between all of those. And so I just called this video, uh, what did I say, something like, learning the note names is something that a lot of guitarists skip. Here is my approach. And it's a 10-minute video and yeah, 100,000, 100, 150,000, I don't know. It went, yeah. And that really got me on the on the path of doing more and more of these videos because mm. got a great reaction and... I've, I re- realized how many guitarists don't know this very basic stuff. Yeah. And so a lot of my videos are like quite intricate and fancy and show offy. You know, I've gotten a lot of uh, some more advanced students that I help with that stuff. But it's good to, you know, just show people the basics that their generation has been skipping. <laughs> Something that they've never really thought about. Yeah. They're just using, using tabs to just learn how to play songs. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's cool how it's sort of building up. I mean, you know, you're giving that content away for free and stuff that you've spent hours and hours on working mm. and you give it away, which is, is great. Well, there's that awesome. there's that mentality with um online marketing is that you you know, say for every for every five that you give, yeah, on the sixth one you take. So you you ask yeah. post a link to your Spotify, ask them to you know, can, can buy my album, can um, yep. buy this PDF of my lesson for 10 bucks. So yep. you, you, can, you can always, uh, you know, my Instagram is, is building a bit slower, but my Facebook page is like 24,000 oh, right. likes okay. on there. That's, right. my, that's my main sort of platform Okay, because that's long form as well. The Instagram yeah. is only one it's minute. Only, yep, yep, so yep. some of these lessons are five and ten minutes so mm. I can really get my point across. Mm. See, I'm happy to teach for free and – I've, I've had a few students come to me for Skype lessons, so I've, I've made some profit out of it that way, but I don't really love teaching on Skype. There's mm. that informality and personalness of it and there's the, the, the delay, the lag. Yeah. But um, so you can always profit from having 24,000 followers. If for you, sure. If you want to. Yeah. But, um, yeah. My main source of income is elsewhere, so I'm, That's it. I'm happy yeah. just to use it as a self-motivating tool. Cool. And if you, po- if you can get this thing sounding good enough at this level and then you post it, well, then you've just sort of set a challenge for yourself. You have to live up to that thing. Yeah. Because anyone, yeah. you know, can probably be a bedroom shredder and get one really good take, but I want to actually like live up to all that stuff and, you know, and, and be able to do it consistently. So it's, um, 
So Michael Jordan used to always say, like he, Michael Jordan, I was a big basketball fan growing up and still am, and he would trash talk to people. And people thought, oh, he's doing that to get in their heads, you know. He's, like, he's, he's putting them down. And then they, would, they asked him, you know, why do you do that? And he said, well, no, I do it for myself so I have to live up to it. Yeah. So if he says to you, you know, I'm the best player on this court right now, I'm going to drop 50 tonight, you know, you think he's trash talking them. He's actually trash talking himself. <laughs> yeah. I, well, now I have to do that. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, the way I visualise it. Yeah. That's great, man. I'll um, put links to your, your Facebook and your Instagram and any sure. other links that um, you want and, you know, all your shows and all that sort of stuff and your YouTube and all that sort of stuff. Um, any any last sort of comments or messages? Um, well, there's something that I, I don't know if I can talk about it because I, I I went for um, Australia's Got Talent again. Oh, okay, cool. Because it's been 10 years. Yeah. And so actually the producer of All Together Now is also producing Australia's Got Talent. Right. And I posted a video on my social media saying like, wow, it's been 10 years since – down under happened because that was right. 09 mm. and obviously it's 2019 now. And he just inboxed me and he said, oh, I'm doing casting and we think it would be a pretty cool story if you came back after 10 years and showed, you know, what you've accomplished. Yeah, right, yeah. So I went in and just did the producer audition, which is behind the scene, like not televised, and they, they'll probably start um, cutting them down and letting us know in about a month's time. So I don't know cool. if I've gotten through yet. Mm. Jay Perino, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Haven't met your house and looks oh soccer practice is finished, yeah. so I can't go over and get some tips. I feel like I've had a great therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Yeah. No, I love it, man. It's good. It was um yeah, good to meet you and yeah, we've been trying to do this one for a little while. Yeah, thanks for asking me. It's nah, sweet very, as very, very flattering. Um you've got some pretty ridiculously talented people that you've spoken to. I've been yeah. listening to it. Yeah, that's good. I, I appreciate that. Um Yep, Jay, all the best, man. And, um, yeah, we'll catch up soon. Yeah, man. Cheers, bro. Cheers. Later.